9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode. I am David Roscoff. I am your host, and we are very pleased to be joined today uh, once again by Senator Chris Murphy of um, Connecticut. Uh, the senator is really one of the leading thinkers in Washington right now in foreign policy. And if you've been wondering, you know, are there any Democrats out there thinking about what the future of foreign policy should look like? I commend you to an article that the senator wrote uh, uh, just a few weeks ago in The Atlantic um, about what progressive foreign policy might look like. And I'd like to come back to that later if I could, Senator. I thought it was a great article. No, thank you. I uh, appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I'd love to talk about it. Um, but but first, let's start with the news. And, you know, there are a couple stories that are going to dominate this week that are foreign policy stories at their heart. Um, but the foreign policy-ness of the stories, I think, may get lost. And one of them, of course, is the beginning of the impeachment uh, hearings, uh, uh, the open public impeachment hearings here in Washington, D.C. And uh you know, obviously this turns on Ukraine and we hear a lot about what did Trump do or what did Giuliani do or, you know, you know, what kind of a law might be broken. But at the end of the day, there's something deeper at work here. The United States Congress had voted funds to Ukraine to enable Ukraine to defend itself against an ongoing invasion from Russia, not out of charity, but because um, a strong Ukraine is essentially the last line of defense between Russia and the EU. And so withholding those funds had a national security consequence. Uh, and, 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 and so it's much more than, you know, was it, you know, a, you, know, a, in, a, you know, an impeachable offense or what, what is the politics of it or, you know, the Hunter Biden story. Uh, the president's really playing with fire here. Uh, in terms of the balance of power in Europe. Isn't that true? Well, it is true. And as you rightly note, uh, when the United States Congress decides to spend money on a national security initiative overseas, uh, it's not up to the president uh, to decide whether or not that money gets allocated. When Congress has um, appropriated foreign aid dollars, uh, the president's job is to spend it. Uh, and so the minute that he put a hold on this funding for whatever reason, be it proper or improper, um, he was in violation of the law, which requires the president to spend the money. And if he doesn't spend the money, then he's got to go through a very specific process to explain exactly why he is refusing to spend it, something that he was not uh, going through. But as you also mentioned, um, this uh, hold on U.S. security aid for Ukraine was an absolute gift to Russia. And it came at the worst possible moment for their new president, Zelensky. President Zelensky, as a candidate, ran on a twofold pledge. One, that he would finally clean up the lingering corruption that had um, you know, remained a staple of life for everyday Ukrainians. But second, he would um, try to 
approach the Russians uh, about a detente, about a cooling of tensions along the line of confrontation. And in fact, uh, he was engaged in a conversation with Putin about some prisoner exchanges uh, and perhaps a way to ultimately get Donbass and Luhansk, the portions of the country that Russia has had invaded, to a place where they were, you know, back formally uh, accepted as a part of the of Ukraine. And right at this moment, when he's doing this negotiation with Putin, comes word that the United States is cutting off our security relationship with Ukraine, which of course weakens Zelensky. It empowers Putin, uh, and it ends up uh, that Ukraine gets a much weaker deal than they would have if the United States was willing to take a harder line, to make it clear to the Russians that the Ukrainians are negotiating with the United States having their back instead of a United States that is telegraphing our abandonment of Ukraine at a critical moment. Uh, and you know, this doesn't you know, apply only to Ukraine. Um, you know, Putin's got uh, forces uh, or proxy agents in Syria. He's got them in Georgia. He's got them in Moldova. And these are all places that the United States cares about. And they all sort of were fed to the wolves when uh, we decided to play politics with our security aid. Well, I think, you know, it's it's uh, a striking, uh, as, as you paint that picture, you know, we're 30 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, 30 years after the fall of the Soviet Empire. Um, and the Russians under Putin have systematically been reversing some of what the world was left with at the conclusion of the Soviet Union, as you talk about. They went into Georgia in 2008 uh, without much resistance um, uh, from the then administration of George W. Bush. Uh, they've gone into uh, Syria, which we sort of gifted to them. Uh, they went into Ukraine, got a little bit of pressure from the Obama administration, uh, not as much as I, I, I think they, they should have, perhaps. Um, but since then, you know, you've had the president of the United States, Donald Trump, saying, uh, well, you know, the, I, the way I read it, the, the people of Crimea wanted to be Russian all along and was actually getting cover from Donald Trump and and this this act of not providing the aid money um, plays into that. And the reason I, I, I pick up on what you're saying there is the Russians have been systematically doing this for 11 years. And, you know, if you're living in Latvia or Lithuania or Estonia, if you're living in Poland or if you're living in some other place bordering um, on this expanding Russian frontier, I imagine you're quite nervous, particularly if at the same time the president of the United States is making un unhappy noises about NATO and where if you're a Latvian or a Lithuanian and you've been sort of relying on Article 5 of NATO as a line of defense, you might be saying, I wonder if that's going to come. I wonder if we're going to get little green men from Russia crossing our border. I wonder if we're going to have any support in defending that. And Vladimir Putin must be thinking, I've got a hall pass here. I can do what I need to do. And 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 why am I, you know, painting this picture this way? This is, you know, as as big and central an issue to geopolitics as there is. And 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 it's not about politics. It's about the security of Europe and the security of the United States. Yeah, I mean, we are living in a, you know, unprecedented era of nation 
uh, V-nation uh, stability and that we very rarely have uh, nation states go to war with each other. We very rarely, um, over the course of the last 70 years, have um, borders breached by one nation against another. Uh, and um, that has accrued to the benefit uh, of global stability. We shouldn't take that for granted, though, uh, for you know, literally a, a millennia uh, before World War II, with regularity, armies were marching across national borders and hundreds of thousands of troops were doing battle on a regular basis. That, by and large, doesn't occur any longer, in part because as a as a global community, we've made the decision to respect international borders, and we've come down hard on countries when they uh, breach those borders. As you mentioned, Russia is now doing it with um, fair regularity, and they are not paying significant consequences. And so, yeah, a lot of folks that I represent in Connecticut do look at places like Georgia and Moldova and Ukraine and say, well, what's the U.S. interest there? Well, you know, all of a sudden, if countries, big countries, with big militaries think that they can get away with changing borders, um, with impinging on the sovereignty of nations that are around their periphery, um, there are going to be explosions all over the world. Um, China would love uh, to be able to take control of the international waters uh, surrounding it uh, so as to decide which commercial traffic goes through um, the, the seas surrounding it and which does not. That would be a disaster for the United States economy. And, and, and the signal we're trying to send in Ukraine is a signal not just to Russia, but to lots of other countries around the world that might uh, try to get away with what Putin has got away with. And, and Trump is, unfortunately, I think you're right that Obama did not send as strong a signal to Russia as some would have liked, um, but it was a consistent signal. Um, and what Trump has done is essentially give a green light to countries that are thinking about the same kind of action that Russia engaged in in Ukraine, uh, because under Trump, Russia has really paid no price for it, has had their invasion in, in some ways endorsed by the American administration, and that has you know, potentially grave consequences for millions of other people uh, all across the world, not in Ukraine, not in Moldova, not in Georgia. It is one of the truly mind-blowing aspects of the moment in which we live, that all of U.S. foreign policy from 1945 until 2016 was oriented to, you know, had kept an eye towards this. During the Cold War, it was the centerpiece of it. Um, but during the entire period, we kept an eye on Russia because it had nuclear power, because it had aggressive ambitions, et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden, on a dime, for reasons which we can speculate on another episode, uh, but which we really know, um, the, the, the United States changed its policy and has essentially given a green light to this expansion. Now, because we have a limited amount of time, let me turn to another story of the week uh, prior to, to getting into the sort of broader picture that, that your article described. But um, at the same time as the uh, hearings are beginning, um, uh, public hearings are beginning on on uh, Capitol Hill. Um, uh, the, the president of Turkey is coming to the United States to meet with the president of the United States. He's getting a, uh, you know, kind of hero's welcome. He gets to go to the White House. He's, he's going to get embraced by the president. He's, he's even doing a joint press conference, which I imagine might be a bit of a rocky experience for him. Um, uh, but, but, you know, this is going to, you know, I don't know, in the eyes of the White House, maybe it'll upstage um, uh, the, the the impeachment hearings, um, but but in some respects, 
it shouldn't upstage be seen as upstaging it. It complements it, because what we did in giving the green light to the Turks to go into Syria also benefited Russia, also extended Russian influence. At the same time, it benefited ISIS, it benefited Iran. Um, and of course, um, it has created a, an opportunity for the Turks to, to, to um, uh, prosecute their long-standing uh, war against the Kurds, uh, which resulted, has already resulted in civilian deaths and the deaths of Kurdish fighters. Um, and this is, you know, something else that you could never imagine um, Americans uh, uh, opposing, uh, supporting, um, and and yet here we are. What 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 you know? What's your outlook on this visit of Erdogan? I mean, it's, it seems appalling to me, but perhaps I'm overreacting. <laughs> I don't think you're overreacting at all. Uh, you know, this is um, this is not the moment. Um, to be sort of giving away the leverage of a uh, visit to the White House when we have evidence uh, just from earlier this morning that Turkish proxy forces inside Syria have been targeting Kurdish civilians, um, that war crimes may be uh, being committed as we speak, as literally Erdogan is walking into uh, to the West Wing inside Syria. And of course, the White House knows the leverage that comes uh, with granting a invitation to the White House, because we know they were using it against President Zelensky. They were telling him that unless he investigated the Bidens and tried to destroy the Clintons, that he wouldn't be given uh, an invitation to the White House. So they, they can't claim ignorance when it comes to uh, the ability to use that meeting to try to change behavior, and they clearly didn't try to use this visit to the White House to get Turkey to act more responsibly there. Let me add two things to this. I think you're very right to draw together um, the crisis in Ukraine with the crisis in Syria, but I'll make the case um, that they should be connected for another reason, not just uh, through the line that connects them to Russia. Um, this is a moment where American credibility around the world is in absolute meltdown. Nobody wants to form an alliance with the United States because, A, they are at risk of being double-crossed, as the Kurds were. Why would any other vulnerable group around the world join with us in a fight against terrorism if, as soon as they do what we ask, we throw them away? Uh, your second fear, though, is that you're going to be dragged into American domestic politics. The, the president is just going to you know, try to get you involved in the 2020 election unless you, uh, in order to get American support. So there's really no reason why countries should want to uh, be uh, allied with the United States today. And they look at both of those contexts, Syria and um, uh, Ukraine, as examples why. Um, the second thing I want to say, though, David, and you know I've, I've remarked about this in a number of different contexts. Um, we shouldn't pretend like Syria was going great um, until President Trump made this decision to pull uh, a couple hundred troops uh, out of the potential line of contact with Turkey. And there's a little bit of revisionism that's happening here. I think that what the president did to the Kurds, what he uh, invited Turkey to do in northeast Syria is abominable. Um, I think it's bad policy. Uh, I also think it's morally bankrupt. Um, but I also think there's a lot of folks um, that got Syria policy wrong for a long time that are trying to pretend that if President Trump hadn't done this, everything would have been okay. Turkey's been telling us forever that they wanted to move troops into northeast Syria. And frankly, a couple hundred American troops was not going to be a permanent answer to Turkey's very clear desires 
uh, to get their troops into that section of the country. Um, and part of my piece in the Atlantic, which we can talk about, is about how to um, solve these political problems with something other than 19-year-old U.S. Marines, um, because we could have formed a, um, a, a, a governance structure in northeast Syria that would have accommodated the Arabs and the Kurds and the Turks, but we didn't even try. Um, and frankly, we didn't try going back to the Obama administration very hard. Uh, and so everybody's got some uh, accounting uh, to, 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 to be had uh, about how we got to a position where just moving a couple hundred troops from one place to another place inside Syria would result in this potential slaughter uh, of thousands and thousands of innocent civilians. You know, I, by the way, I think that it underscores your point about American credibility that the Turks have undertaken operations in Syria, um, as they have, which are clearly uh, going to, you know, would it would, uh, you know, jeopardize the relationship with the United States in any other circumstance. You know, Erdogan knew he was going to the White House. He he greenlit all this, um, and in a way, he's kind of thumbing his nose at Trump, much as he did when Trump sent him that letter um, a few weeks back, and you know, essentially, it went straight into the bin. Um, er Erdogan knows that Trump is weak and needs to cast everything as a win even if he is getting disrespected because he saw it happen in North Korea, because he's seen it happen in China, because he's seen it happen with Russia, because he's seen it happen everywhere in the world. You know, the, tr Trump just wants to be able to claim victory even if he's losing. Um, and that, of course, undermines credibility as well. Uh, now, again, because we have a limited amount of time here, I do want to go and, and turn to this article that you had in The Atlantic on October 7th, which is called How to Make a Progressive Foreign Policy Actually uh, Work. And I, I commend everybody to read it because, frankly, I think that the uh, presidential uh, uh, campaign that's been conducted among the Democrats thus far, while stimulating in some respects and interesting from a policy perspective in some respect, has not really touched more, much on foreign policy. And the question of what kind of foreign policy should succeed Trump foreign policy is extremely important for all the reasons that we've just touched upon. And one of the things that I think is striking in the article, which is extremely thoughtful, and I, I, I agree with the substance of the article in almost every point um, is that you do say, you know, Barack Obama, yeah, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, Barack Obama was a good president. There was a lot to like in what Barack Obama did. There were some things to like in his foreign policy, but there were some areas where we can do better and we need to build on this and we need to go in with eyes open. And Syria and Ukraine are both places where um, U.S. foreign policy and engagement could have been conducted differently and should have been conducted differently uh, and should be by an incoming president. And so, uh, you know, I, I, it's very rare to get that. There, you know, we, we're almost in this era where um, Democrats suggesting we can do better than we did is, is considered sacrilege. And it's <laughs> almost, you know, it's, it's almost always met by, but Trump is worse, you know, and it's like, right. okay, that's fine. But the day after Trump leaves, and the Democrats, uh, a Democrat were, is is in charge. You actually have to govern, and 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 you you've got to set a higher standard than that. You do in this article. Maybe maybe you want to sort of sketch out for us what your central objective was in writing. Yeah, well, I, listen, I I am like you, uh, a little worried about the lack of 
discussion about national security and foreign policy that has occurred thus far in the presidential campaign. Because you know, when you become president, you have very little wiggle room to make big changes domestically without a uh, will in Congress. Um, but you actually have a whole lot of ability to make things better or screw things up um, w around the world, uh, because we do vest in the American president a fair bit of discretion when it comes to foreign policy. And so, uh, you know, I'd love for more of that to talk to be happening inside the context of the Democratic primary. Um, it, it, listen, it, in this piece, you know, I'm trying to step back and, and make a couple arguments. The first is that, you know, Democrats shouldn't forsake military action abroad. We shouldn't become, a, you know, a party of reflexive military withdrawal. Um, but we should make clear um, when it makes sense to commit American troops overseas and when it does not, and, and, and what our bar should be. And I argue for a pretty high bar. Um, in that piece, I say, you know, we should not be committing troops overseas as progressives unless we have uh, a vote by Congress authorizing it. We should involve the public in these debates. It lends legitimacy legitimacy to these actions abroad. We shouldn't be trying to use troops to um, solve excuse me, solve political problems overseas. We need to identify ahead of time whether it's a military problem or it's a political problem. And again, admit, especially in the Middle East, that 19 and 20 year old soldiers um, end up making political problems worse more often than they make them better. Um, third, we should uh, you know, conduct military operations um, above the sheets rather than under them. Uh, our covert operations, whether they be training rebels or dropping drones, um, have, uh, I argue, uh, made most places less stable rather than more stable. Um, and then I go into this argument about you know, sort of what the threats are across the world. Um, and uh, by and large, they are not conventional military threats, whether it be uh, creeping corruption or oil-rich petro-dictators, global warming, uh, youth poverty bulges, you know, all these big problems that we face around the world can't really be met by aircraft carriers, and yet we're spending 20 times as much money on defense and intelligence as we are on foreign aid and democracy uh, promotion and human rights protection. And so uh, the second piece, the second half of the piece really talks about setting this next Democratic president up to succeed. Um, and giving them capabilities that they just don't have today. Um, in, in the case of Russia, and I'll leave it here, um, we spent $4 billion a year on additional new military hardware that we put in NATO countries uh, in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, and I guess that's important, right? We want to make it clear that if you actually do step into a NATO country, there's going to be a consequence. But that's not really what Ukraine needs. Ukraine right now needs... Um, uh, political help and economic help, because Russia is really trying to break Ukraine politically and economically. Russia actually doesn't want to march its army into Kiev, and it, all we can do is supply military help, because that's all we have, right? If all you got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so the second half of this piece is about how do we upscale our anti-corruption capacities? How do we actually help countries break their energy dependence on neighbors? What do we uh, do... Um, about this problem where we can't get diplomats into uh, complicated, uh, unstable places like northeast Syria, and all we can give them is military hardware. Um, I've got a plan to double the size of our non-military foreign policy tools, uh, and I think if we did that, uh, we would actually be able to stop fighting what we call asymmetric warfare. Right? We, 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 we say we're fighting an asymmetric war against terrorist groups and Russian um, uh, interests because 
they've got all sorts of tools that we don't. And that's just a choice. Uh, that's just a choice. And part of this, this progressive foreign policy that I, I think is, is necessary to talk about is changing those American capabilities. Well, again, in the, just the last two minutes, let me frame one last question. You know, it seems to me that the original sin of 21st century American foreign policy is the invasion of Iraq. We go into Iraq during the George W. Bush administration. We overreach. It's a catastrophe. Uh, it does damage to the U.S. It destabilizes the Middle East. It's perhaps the most egregious mistake of modern U.S. foreign policy. Um, and Barack Obama comes into office and he says, we can't do that again, um, and lays out in his first year in office some rather bold ideals about how to engage in the Middle East in his speech in Cairo or how to um, uh, move away from um, the threat posed by nuclear weapons in speech in Prague. Um, but then because of the, the reaction to what we did in, in the Middle East during the Bush term, he was a little hesitant to engage in any way. We actually over-embraced, as you point out, covert engagement because it was politically uh, easier and and because it was less visible. Um, but you know, in places where active uh, diplomatic engagement uh, was was difficult or military engagement might have been required, there was some hesitance. Not in Iran. That was not that was a, an a, an exception and a successful one. Not. Uh, in TPP, although that waited till the end of the administration. We were also a little bit late on the Paris Accords. But generally, there was this problem. Trump comes in and he then you know, doubles down on disengagement, goes to the uh, nationalist uh, 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 sort of walled community approach to American foreign policy. But he also starts dismantling international institutions, weakening them unfunding programs in the UN, moving away from treaties like the INF, attacking um, NATO and other kinds of alliances, discrediting the whole idea of alliances, undermining diplomacy, undermining diplomats, undermining the intelligence community. Um, and so we now are very inward looking, very weak, very disengaged, very vulnerable as a result of it. You describe a bunch of things in terms of forward engagement, political measures and so forth. But isn't a central piece of this that we sort of have to stop and say, just as at the end of World War II, we needed to have a vision for an international community, international institutions, um, that, that we need to look at what are the new international institutions that we need, how do existing institutions, whether it's NATO or the WTO or the UN, need to be upgraded? How do we burden share? How do we work with alliances better? What are the alliances we don't have whether it has to do with climate crisis or whether it has to do with transmigration or other kinds of issues. I mean, it seems to me there's a moment right now for great uh, creative blossoming, blossoming a little bit like the Dean Acheson present at the creation moment. And I'm just, I'm just wondering if you, you agree that that kind of opportunity and necessity exists now. Of course it does. And what is truly extraordinary, as you mentioned, is that you know, the president uh, and his secretary of state aren't just engaged in, you know, specific attacks on uh, international organization by international organization. They, you know, very proudly um, are engaged in a broad set against the entire concept of multilateral engagement, right? They think it's weakness for any nation to cooperate with any other nation. 
Um, and of course, what about the last 70 years as an advertisement against um, countries linking arms to try to solve big problems? Like I said, we shouldn't take for granted the fact um, that we, we, we don't have 100-year wars any longer, that we had two world wars in succession, two enormous cataclysms, uh, um, and we haven't seen anything like it in the 70 years since. That's because of the success of these international efforts and because of American leadership that went out and said, um, you know what, we can't fix every problem around the world, but if we are fighting for more democracy, not less democracy, if we are fighting to empower citizens uh, to be able to raise claims about their own safety um, and their own economic advancement, um, then um, we're making the world a more stable place. And you know, maybe Macron set off an important debate by claiming that in part because of Trump's attacks on NATO, the organization is brain dead. It probably does make sense to step back uh, and think about what are the core functionalities of NATO? Who really should be in and who should be out? What is the UN doing right and what is it doing wrong? What should it do more of and what should it do less of? Um, and you know, maybe there is an opportunity um, after uh, you know, this debacle uh, of an administration for the next Democratic president to come in and sit down with world leaders of like mind and say, how do we recover? Right? Trump did um, almost irreparable damage uh, to our ability uh, to be able to get together as influential nations and attack the world's problems. We can't leave these institutions as vulnerable as they were in 2017 to a demagogue like this. How do we repair them and make them better? That is absolutely an opportunity. I don't cover it in my piece. I don't claim that that piece is about you know everything that progressives should care about, but clearly at the top of the list is breathing some new life into multilateral institutions and maybe coming up with some new ones uh, that can do even better than the ones that we have today. Well, if anybody does it, I suspect you will do it. So I'm sorry to add something else to your to-do list, you know, the, the follow-up article perhaps, but uh, look forward to seeing it because I think it's a really important aspect of this conversation about where we might go from here uh, if we're fortunate enough to move on to a new administration in 2021. Uh, I thank you very much for your time once again. Hope to talk to you again in the future. It's been terrific. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, Keep up the, the great work. The, it's been it's very stimulating to watch and to listen to you um, uh, comment on these issues. Well, uh, David, thanks for all your uh, great work and, and, and scholarship and uh, look forward to coming back again. All right. Thank you. Bye bye. That's it for this episode of uh, Deep State Radio. If you want more, go to the DSRnetwork.com and uh, look at other podcasts, look at other things we've written, look at what we've got upcoming, sign up, become a member. Uh, and we look forward to having you join again uh, later this week on the next episode of Deep State Radio uh, and in the future. Bye-bye.